Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. And as some of you know, I'm not just a Quillette podcast host. I also edit and write articles for the Quillette website, a site that you should check out, by the way, if you're just a Quillette listener and not also a Quillette reader. And if you've seen work under my byline, you'll know that one of my favorite kinds of stories are investigative pieces on universities, specifically in regard to the waves of ideological social panic that now seem to wash over many of North America's most hallowed campuses. But I'm not the only journalist looking for these stories. And lately, one of my most worthy competitors in this field is a young prodigy at the Washington Free Beacon who's not much older than the college students he's writing about. His name is Aaron Sabarium, and he's my guest today. Though there's an unusual podcasting subplot here that requires a little bit of explanation. You see, I initially interviewed Aaron about his great free beacon scoop about Yale Law School, where some of the more progressive students recently took to Instagram to denounce their conservative peers and to demand, quote, unrelenting daily confrontation with anyone at the law school seen as right-wing. This was in the wake of news that the U.S. Supreme Court may overturn Roe v. Wade, which, according to one Instagram post from first-year Yale Law student Shyamala Ramakrishna, indicated a, quote, Christo-fascist political takeover of the United States, and who knows, maybe Yale Law School too. And this isn't the first scoop that Aaron has gotten in regard to Yale Law School. Some of you may remember that he also covered the administrative hounding of a second-year YLS student named Trent Colbert, whom we had on the podcast back in December. All of this was of special interest to me because I actually attended Yale Law School back in the 1990s, when I was training for my brief career as a tax lawyer. This was before I entered the lucrative world of journalism. And yes, I remember Yale as being a very liberal place, but nothing compared to the feverish wokeness that Aaron documents. Okay, now here's the twist. After I interviewed Aaron about the situation at Yale, and while I was prepping this podcast episode, the guy breaks another story about another Ivy League school, because that's what Aaron does. In this case, it's Princeton University, which is apparently preparing to fire tenured professor Joshua Katz, who, and there's a Quillette tie-in here, in 2020 wrote a Quillette essay criticizing a Princeton faculty letter calling for the creation of a committee that would review all Princeton-produced publications for signs of racist thought. Princeton is now citing, as grounds for Katz's dismissal, a consensual romantic relationship that he'd engaged in with a student more than a decade ago, and for which he was already disciplined by the school in 2018. So, given this new story, I went back and re-interviewed Aaron, this time focusing on Princeton. And that's the part you're going to hear shortly. Then, you'll hear a brief commercial break, and then a longer segment in which I speak with Aaron about the situation at my alma mater in New Haven. Got that? First Princeton, then Yale. Great. Without further ado, here are my conversations with Free Beacon reporter Aaron Sabarium. So, Joshua Katz, Princeton University... I think a lot of people listening to this heard the word tenured when I described him in the intro, tenured professor. I thought tenured profs couldn't be fired. So it is possible to fire a tenured professor. 
but they have to have engaged in a really egregious violation of university policy. Two of the most common grounds for firing a tenured professor are fraud and sexual harassment, and other grounds could include sort of really any criminal activity. What makes Katz's case unique is that the university explicitly cleared him of sexual harassment. The Title IX office said that there was no basis for allegations of sexual harassment and dismissed that complaint. So I'm just going to interrupt you. So not all our listeners are American. Title IX is the statutory provision under which a lot of anti-sexist measures are implemented on university campuses. So this was 2018. So, so, so also I should say, so the Title IX complaint, actually, there was no Title IX complaint in 2018. That only came later in 2021. The initial complaint, I mean, it wasn't even a complaint filed by the woman. It just that it came to the school's attention that he had had a relationship with this undergraduate in the mid-2000s. So in 2018, they investigate him. He confesses immediately. He does not try to hide it or downplay it. And they suspend him for a year without pay. He's like, yep, I deserve this. They punish him. He accepts it. And then it's like case closed. But then after he writes this controversial essay for Quillette, then he kind of gets a target put on his back and the school newspaper starts investigating him. They surface this case for which he was already disciplined in 2018. There was an investigation by the school newspaper that unearthed this 2018 incident. And after that happens, the woman with whom he had this relationship reaches back out to the university. She didn't want to participate in the 2018 investigation. She really wanted nothing to do with it. But now with, with him at the center of all this controversy, she does reach out and does participate. And... There's basically two separate almost investigations going on, one by the Title IX office and the other by the office of the dean of faculty. The Title IX investigation says no violation of sexual harassment policy whatsoever. There's no Title IX issue here, fully consensual. But it says that, well, but this maybe violated other policies that would fall under the purview of the dean of faculty. And it's that dean of faculty investigation that turns up or, or claims to turn up that Katz had not been fully forthcoming in the initial 2018 investigation and that he had allegedly pressured this girl with whom he had a relationship to not seek therapy. Katz has repeatedly denied that charge. So there's some he said, she said here, but it, it's worth emphasizing, right? They were effectively investigating the same relationship they'd investigated in 2018. If this were in the criminal sphere, I think this would be double jeopardy in the sense Correct. that... Correct. Almost certainly. Also, to be fair, I'm sure we're all familiar with cases in which somebody who actually did bad stuff did pressure uh, women involved. Mm. Although it certainly does raise suspicions about the fact that, you know, I know he wrote this piece for Quillette in which he called out this open letter. This is going back to 2020. This open letter that post-George Floyd faculty members at Princeton had written demanding this like really creepy kind of star chamber that would determine, I think, if any publication on campus contained racist content. 
Professor Katz, to my mind, properly called that out and wrote a great Quillette piece about it. So is it fair to say that he was the most vocal academic at Princeton pushing back at some of this stuff that was coming out in 2020? Yeah, and and, it, and by, a, by a wide margin. I mean, I don't know of anyone else. I'm sure there were people who quietly opposed it, as he even says in his Quillette piece, but I don't know of anyone else who publicly said anything that was anywhere near as scathing as he did. So you, I read your story in the Free Beacon about this. As I understand, you got multiple sources from inside the university administrative apparatus in regard to this, no? Multiple sources with firsthand knowledge of the situation. I shouldn't give any more identifying info. Do you get the sense that Princeton is going to get some pushback and maybe partly because of your story, Professor Katz may be able to maintain his job at Princeton? To answer the second question first, you know, they were supposed to have this meeting on May... Sorry, who was supposed to have the meeting? Who was... The the Board of Trustees was supposed to have a meeting. They would make the ultimate decision, is that correct? Yes, they were supposed to have a meeting on May 18th, and it's not clear to me whether they did have that meeting or not. I'm trying to actually find that out. It's all kind of fluid and in motion. Um, it's possible my story will throw a wrench in their plans, but who knows? So anybody listening to this podcast who's a regular listener to the Quillette podcast will will be familiar with the fact that, uh, I guess it was just maybe two months ago, I interviewed Rob Montz, who's this filmmaker who documents some of the stuff going on on campuses. And we talked about this famous black professor, Roland Fryer Jr. There's some elements of the story that's similar. There were other academics at Harvard who didn't like his research. They didn't regard it as politically correct. And they got him. I mean, he's still a professor at Harvard, but he was sanctioned, censured, whatever the word, based on a he said, she said thing involving his behavior, not, not harassing behavior, but like what he maybe would admit was flirtatious behavior. As Rob Montz told our listeners, heavy suspicions that the ramping up of these allegations was essentially a proxy for the ideological discontents that people had with Professor Fryer's research. I'm not sure if you followed that case closely, but do you see parallels between those two? So I think the parallel is that there is very strong circumstantial evidence in both cases that the sexual harassment investigation or, or investigation related to some kind of sexual or romantic conduct was motivated largely by political grievances. There is, I think, an important asymmetry um, without getting too much into the weeds of stuff, including stuff that's not public. I, I would say it's pretty clear that this relationship that Joshua Katz had with this undergraduate happened and was very dysfunctional, and he himself has admitted that. Um, and admitted that it was quite dysfunctional and, and wrong of him. With Fryer, I, I just don't know the details, but my sense is that there is a little more ambiguity even as to, to what exactly happened. Well, Fryer's case, no one, no one took their clothes off. <laughs> yeah, so, so in that sense, maybe, in that sense, maybe you could argue the Princeton thing, axing him is a little more understandable. On the other hand, though, you know, Another difference is that although Fryer did get pushback for his research, it was pretty careful empirical research, and he didn't, like, throw bombs unnecessarily. I mean, Katz, I wouldn't say he, like, deliberately yeah. threw a bomb or anything, but, it you know, his essay for you guys was, was a much more direct challenge to the university. 
and also you know the reaction to the it wasn't just you know oh we disagree with your argument it was you know you are a vicious racist how dare you well didn't the president didn't the president himself take issue the president himself condemned Katz's essay of Princeton so this isn't Joe Biden this is yes no yeah 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 well <laughs> this is the, the president of Princeton took the extraordinary step I mean, this is a tangent, but, um, you know, these places, they're all about disruption and challenging the status quo. But as soon as anyone comes out and says that the university's own social justice dogmas seem nonsensical, uh, these champions of, of disruption, like, <laughs> they're the first to play the hierarchy card. Of course. And, it, you know, another another case um, that there are some parallels to, I would say, is Ilya Shapiro's um, at Georgetown. Yeah. Ilya Shapiro is the professor who you know after biden said he was only going to nominate a black woman to the supreme court said you know so and so would be the most qualified but he's not a black woman so instead we'll get a lesser black woman the phrase in context clearly meant i think a non-black person happens to be the most qualified and so any person other than him including all black women will by definition be less qualified but they interpreted that as he's saying all black people are inherently like lesser candidates. And so what Eisengruber condemned, the, the president of Princeton condemned Katz for, was saying that a student social justice group was a local terrorist organization, saying, you know, that's, you know, how dare you conflate law-abiding protest with violence? This is so inappropriate, Professor Katz. Well, and you read it in context, it's very clear he was not accusing them of actual violent terrorism. He was saying that they terrorized through accusations of racism and protest and sit-ins and other things, that they terrorized anyone who disagreed with them and tried to smear them as a racist, which the record just plainly shows is true, right? So that's another kind of parallel, this, this you know, fixating on one phrase and interpreting it in the least charitable way um, in order to condemn somebody and ruin their career. So uh, have you spoken to Joshua Katz? Uh I should be careful with saying who I've spoken to. Uh, let's just say I'm familiar with the situation. Okay. Because <laughs> it's interesting, because again, uh, going back to Rob Mons, Rob Mons didn't actually interview Roland Fryer because I asked him about it during our podcast. And his speculation, which I found uh, persuasive, was that it can only make the guy's situation worse if he's seen to participate in his own defense, which is, yeah. is one of the more star chamber parts of this, which is first rule of uh, kangaroo court is you do not defend yourself in kangaroo court because that just shows that you lack remorse. Right. I suspect that is a, a dynamic here. I, I would just add that um, he has on multiple occasions said publicly and to the university that he is very, very sorry for what he did. Sorry, for the Quillette piece or for the relationship, not the Quillette piece. Uh, okay. Just by the way, as I told people in the intro, they're going to hear two versions of Aaron Sibarium. They're going to hear the version from last week where we talked about Yale Law School. And then <laughs> newer Aaron, who's talking about Princeton. So we're going to go to commercial break now. And when they come back, they're going to hear the you from a week ago. So goodbye to current Aaron. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And now a message from one of our sponsors, BetterHelp Online Therapy. I don't think I need to tell you that life can be overwhelming and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment or fatigue. Now, we usually use the word burnout with work, but that's obviously not the only cause. 
There are plenty of other things in life that can lead us to feel burned out. And BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. I try to take care of my own stress with reading, board gaming, and sports, but I know from experience that self-care can only do so much, and sometimes you need to talk to a professional, which is what BetterHelp is about. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So give BetterHelp a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. I sometimes report on these academic controversies from the vantage point of somebody who went to university in the 1990s. How, if I may ask, do you get all these great scoops from from students, some of whom I'm guessing are maybe older than you? You know, it's a mix. Um, I'll, I'll either hear about something from an outside source and then sort of inquire. Sometimes people send me stuff. I have found that once you break one or two of these high profile stories it gets easier and easier to break the next one because you just develop a reputation so there's kind of a compounding effect this stuff is going on in every major institution and every major university the fact that i'm able to get all these scoops i think testifies to the pervasive discontent with the status quo a lot of people privately do not like the ideological mania that's taken hold or the culture it's produced, it nonetheless persists and nonetheless has a kind of stranglehold on our institutions. So look, this is a pattern I've observed is that sometimes, uh, even though there's an appearance of ideological homogeneity or even unanimity on the surface, uh, if you start asking a few questions, when people trust you, they'll Sometimes they'll tell you that, you know, there's a few true believers who are enforcing a certain orthodoxy and the people who disagree with it, it's not really worth their time and effort to stir the pot. So they kind of mumble their lines and go along with it. I'm curious, like when you get these scoops, typically is the first line, please don't use my name or tell people where you got this, but... Yeah, more or less. I mean, there's exceptions, but that's that's the general rule. And are your sources typically conservatives, or are they disaffected progressives? It really is a mix. Obviously, some are conservatives, but especially when you get outside of Ivy League schools, you find that there are just a lot of normal liberals working in normal corporations or liberal nonprofits who uh, are kind of suddenly taken by surprise by the fervor that's taken hold. I've had plenty of sources who I would say are moderate Democrats. When you were at school, were you one of these disaffected individuals? Sometimes it goes both ways. Sometimes it's like a true believer who flips. I'm wondering a little bit about your background. So I grew up as a pretty normal, moderate Democrat in Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. I would say I always thought 
quote-unquote political correctness was kind of stupid and was very pro-free speech, but would nonetheless be inclined to defend Barack Obama on any number of policies, right? Um, I thought, yeah, liberals are basically right. Conservatives are basically wrong. There's a couple exceptions, and, you know, we should talk to each other, but, you know. Um, And then I went to Yale College for undergrad, started in 2014, so I was there 2014 to 2018, And that meant that I was there in 2015 when campus exploded into all these protests about racial justice. Uh, There was the Halloween kerfluffle, you know, controversies about cultural appropriation, uh, Nicholas Christakis being surrounded in the Suleiman Courtyard, uh, names of buildings being changed. All of that really took hold of campus in November 2015, when I was the opinion editor of the Yale Daily News, which meant that I had to edit all of the op-eds about this incident, some of which were critical, but the majority of which were just all in on what we would now call wokeness. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will remember the appalling treatment of Professor Christakis and his wife, who I think was at the center of that. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, she she sent this email, which I don't think there was anything wrong with it, but... Very anodyne. If I remember correctly, the students, or at least some of the students who got in the face of Professor Christakis in that, I mean, to me, mortifying, cringy scene, they imagined they were like social justice heroes, and they're basically just harassing a world-renowned uh, academic. Yes. Didn't they get like some kind of award or something after the fact? Yes, two of them. Two of them did. They got an award given to students who who had made some big contribution to race relations on campus. That was literally the award. I was, I was really taken, I was really taken aback by it. I thought it was insane. And, you know, I'd already probably in, in my freshman year gotten, I got exposed to, you know, more intellectual conservatives through, uh, through debating societies. But then this happened and I really realized, oh, wow. I mean, these people who are going to be future leaders of America, Yale students, are just insane, or at least the <laughs> loudest ones are. And and there was, I think, a silent majority that thought it was going too far, but no one said anything because they didn't want to get called racist. Yeah, you know, I witnessed it up close. I, I saw how in the Yale Daily News uh, editorial meetings, uh, anyone who was critical of the protests was either, if, if not explicitly called a racist, then then was subject to a lot of pretty strong insinuations, um, such that there was a very strong pressure not to uh, dissent. And so, of course, even though a lot of people privately thought this was going too far, the Yale Daily News ended up putting out an editorial that I actually had to author myself, even though I disagreed with it, basically endorsing the protests full on and not really saying anything or barely anything about the importance of free speech um and civility and open discourse and all that and you know i also had to edit like individual students op-eds you know i saw up close how these kids thought and how they wrote obviously not every progressive is this insane but i don't really think that the kind of really uncharitable characterizations of these kids as you know snowflakes who can't deal with disagreement and are are, and are just sort of crazy i mean i don't really think those 
characterizations or caricatures. I mean, just having seen it up close, it was pretty insane what they were saying. And they really did not have, I think, any meaningful ability to understand where the other side was coming from. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the students weren't smart in just a raw cognitive sense. And it doesn't mean that they're not ambitious. They weren't the kinds of snowflakes who were just going to buckle and be incapable of taking over elite institutions, quite quite the opposite. They, they seem to have colonized and then completely subjugated uh, a lot of media and cultural and even legal institutions. You did something that I would be incapable of doing, writing editorials you completely disagree with. How did you manage that? It was your job and... No, but you didn't get paid. <laughs> no, well, but, you know, look, you know, I, I had enough loyalty to the institution that I I wouldn't have wanted to do that. And B, you know, if, if you pull something like that, it it would put a target on your back and and you you would yourself become a center of controversy. And so there, there was actually, I think, a pretty strong incentive for me to be professional about it. All right. Uh, so let's talk about this, this recent scoop that you got. So I went to the law school. So I went to, to Yale Law School. This is in the 90s. And I remember even at the time, so I thought, oh, wow, this is, you know, I came from Canada, which is a pretty progressive place. And I was kind of shocked, just kind of how much Americans thought about race. Like, it, it wasn't even like a left right thing, which is everything, everything, you know, the, the legal decisions I was reading in school and the conversations and even the way people organize themselves socially, race was just everywhere in the way the typology of, of human beings existed. And yet, the mania for the subject was just nowhere near what it is now. We had a federalist society, which still exists, but it was it was known to be conservative, but it wasn't seen as, well, I mean, let, let's talk about this case, because this goes to this issue where your original tweet, this is um, May 14th, students at Yale Law School are responding to Alito's leaked opinion, this is on Roe v. Wade, uh, with calls to accost their conservative classmates through, quote, unrelenting daily confrontation, end quote, and toss the Constitution by the wayside. And then you, you say, we've got the screenshots. What is unrelenting daily confrontation? Well, when I contacted all these kids for comment, asking them to clarify what they meant, none of them told me, so I can't be sure. But my best guess is that, from context, she thinks that when you see your FedSoc classmates in the hallway or in the library or having fun at a party, you should go up to them and presumably peacefully, but, but nonetheless aggressively, berate them for their complicity in what this student referred to as a Christo-fascist conspiracy. Um, to... so when you say she, this is, hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, first-year law student Shyamala Ramakrishna, because she was the one who put up the Instagram post, she's referring to conspirators in the Christo, that's C-H-R-I-S-T-O, fascist political takeover, uh, and she lamented the fact they are, quote, coming to our parties, end quote, and laughing in the library without quote, unrelenting daily confrontation, end quote. By the way, the one thing I liked about going to Yale Law School is the library is beautiful. Yes, it is. I wasn't a particularly good law student, but I love the library. I'm not sure the librarian there would have tolerated unrelenting daily confrontation when people were trying to study. But tell, tell us a little bit about Shyamala Ramakrishna. A lot of people gave me crap 
for naming names in this story. But she posted this on Instagram. Yeah, of course. So it's it's ridiculous. I mean, and and even the people who had private accounts, their their they had followers in the you know thousands, and there was no reasonable expectation of privacy. It's not just. I mean, look, it's not just her. Anyone at Yale Law School is in a position. They they are poised to be in a position of immense legal influence. Yale Law School, even more than Harvard and Stanford, just churns out an astonishing number of law clerks, an astonishing number of government bureaucrats, a, a really astonishing number of law professors, like probably a fifth of current law professors in the United States went to Yale Law School, right? Hits so far above its weight um, in terms of just how many students it has. I would say anyone who goes there who is a decent student you're going to have a pretty easy time clerking for a federal judge if you want to do that. And you're going to certainly have a very easy time getting a job in any kind of elite law firm or public interest boutique you want to work for. You know, the reason that I think it's relevant, all of these kids are going to take these ideas and import them into the legal system. It's not like these are people who are maybe privately posting crazy political opinions but have will have jobs that are totally unrelated to them. I'd argue it's pretty important to know what Yale Law students believe, and, and I think that does make this case and the naming of names somewhat different from a lot of other quote-unquote cancel culture cases. It's absolutely true that Yale Law School produces a lot of influential members of society present company accepted. <laughs> but another first-year law student, uh, Leah Fessler, who, who's written as a freelancer for the New York Times, uh, she says, it's not time for reform. Democratic institutions won't save us. I have no idea what that means, but it's, it's just, it's a very odd and creepy thing for a person to say. And then on Twitter, again, another public medium, then tweeted this uh, widely circulated tweet by a guy named Evan Burnick, who's an assistant professor at Northern Illinois University of College of Law. He attacks, I guess he's attacking you. He doesn't name you. <laughs> he refuses to link to the article. He's definitely attacking me. Yes, I saw this. Uh, but he does go on this little speech here. He's basically accusing you of kind of cancel culture. He's, he's trying to flip the tables and say, hey, you're trying to cancel these radical progressives and leftists who are demanding that everyone go around harassing conservative students at school because that's legitimate left-wing discourse he's saying this could affect their future careers he's not wrong this could affect their future careers for saying crazy stuff on instagram no so he's he's not wrong but i i i would i would push back very strongly on this so so a few things um one i would say that cancel culture rightly understood refers to disproportionate reputational or professional consequences and whether the consequences are disproportionate is a function, I think, of a number of things. One, what was substantively said. Two, uh, the context in which it was said, right? Was it private, public? Um, and, and, and three, um, whether, if in the case of sort of political speech, whether the political opinions are relevant to the person's job and how they might be conducting themselves in public. So just to take some easy cases, right, if someone tells an off-color joke in private and they're like some random software engineer, I mean, A, you know, an off-color joke is not the same thing as, you know, calls for overthrowing democracy. 
Right. And B, you know, it's not clear how that would really relate to their work as a software engineer in general. But if you're working for a federal judge, right, who hears all sorts of cases, you know, potentially, hey, maybe even about, you know, voting rights, and you think democratic institutions won't save us, right? It's not time for reform, implying that maybe we need to go outside of or undermine democratic institutions in order to save us. That strikes me as pretty relevant to your job and pretty relevant to what might actually happen in a legal case. So I think that's, you know, important for the public to know about. Nobody really would think it was cancel culture, or I wouldn't, if someone working for a federal judge said, you know, seriously, unironically, like that they hated a particular race of people, that those people shouldn't have rights, etc. Of course, that's fair game because if a, and if a judge were okay with having a clerk who believed that, I think it would be reasonable for people to ask, well, how's this judge going to rule? Is he going to be fair? And I'd say just so with, you know, a judge who's comfortable having a clerk or intern or whatever who says democratic institutions won't save us or, you know, uh, the Constitution is like an illegitimate document. I mean, yeah, like, I'd be kind of worried um, if I were sitting in that courtroom and, and I didn't trust that the judge really cared much for democracy or the Constitution. That might, that might worry me. The point of publishing it, right, is not to ruin their lives. Um, the point is that this is important. This is a matter of public concern. And when we contacted one of the student's judges for comment, well, we included the detail that the student was working for the judge because it was relevant to the thesis of the story, namely that these kids will be in positions of legal power, um, and it matters what they think. And when you name someone, you typically ask them for comment, right? Both because that's just good journalistic practice, and also because it seems relevant. Like, is the judge okay with having a clerk who believes this, right? What does that tell us about the judge? If someone had said this exact same thing, but they weren't working for a judge, they were just like, you know, working in tech or something. I mean, I don't, that wouldn't be a news story. The reason it, it struck a little bit of a chord with me is because um, here in Canada, we, <laughs> we have this self-styled anti-hate network. It's doing this kind of story from the other side. It's like, find some guy who posted mm-hmm. something they believe to be racist. And like, the first thing they do is... You know, he makes sandwiches at Quiznos, and they call up Quiznos and said, does this person represent the values of Quiznos Sandwich Shop? And, of course, they say no, and they fire the guy. They never actually, to my knowledge, did it to Quiznos, but it's, it's, it's amazing that there's no form of employment too menial that these people won't try and ruin. Or, from my point of view, it, it seems like they're, they're trying to ruin their lives. So right. there's another law student. Her name is Melissa Olgan, uh, and she seems to have responded to you and said, Olgan told the Free Beacon, you are in no way authorized to use, this is her Instagram stuff about, oh, I'll, I'll read that actually. Uh, she, How can we possibly expect a document, she means the Constitution, drafted by wealthy white landowning men to protect those who face marginalization? I mean, not a crazy question. I've heard some variation on that even when I was there. But this idea that you're in no way authorized to use it, if you look up her name on Google, I don't think there's a social media platform that she hasn't promoted herself on in her social justice stuff. Everything from YouTube, Twitter, SoundCloud, Medium, several New England newspapers, Etsy, Pinterest. She seems to have a huge talent for self-promotion. She seems to have done some TEDx thing. 
is this a recurring theme for you that like some of these social justice types, they're extremely talented in terms of getting their name out there and promoting themselves. But as soon as you turn a spotlight on them in a way that arouses skepticism, they kind of turtle up a little bit. It's very common. And I think it part of what also frustrates me to just to just go back to your previous question for a sec. Part of what makes a lot of cancel cases, cancel culture cases, disproportionate is that the thing that was said really wasn't that bad or bad at all. It was either a totally legitimate opinion or like a joke. You know, it wasn't some kind of sincere declaration of intent, what have you. I think it's it's pretty bad, morally bad, to destroy someone's livelihood over you know, a joke or something like that. Because even an off-color joke, you know, the worst possible joke imaginable, it's just not that big a deal to tell a bad joke. But the actual act of canceling someone for that joke, I would argue, is pretty immoral. And thus, to cancel the canceler is not obviously as disproportionate because the act of cancellation is in fact a lot worse than the act for which the original person was being canceled. So it's not at all actually inconsistent to say, look, you know, especially to someone who has such a public profile, well, you know, if you go and like ostracize your conservative classmates for, I guess, just being conservative or or, or something like that, you know, you really are doing something much worse than your classmates, and thus it is reasonable for reputational sanction, higher reputational sanction, to attach to your actions than to the actions of your classmates you're trying to cancel. And that's not that's not a hypocritical position at all. The key here is that it's actually sort of impossible to define or delineate cancel culture without reference to proportionality. Again, you've had a number of scoops here at uh, Yale Law School. Here at Quillette, we followed up on one of them, which is late 2021, when this second-year law student, Trent Colbert, our listeners may remember, because we had him on the podcast, and we played audio from these mm-hmm. bizarre struggle sessions he had with university administrators, in which he was called in to apologize for a kind of cheeky party invitation it had the word trap house in it and by one interpretation it was seen as problematic uh but the the real uh guts of the story which which you really you nailed because you had the recording just the really creepy way uh at least two university law school administrators gave him the hard sell on apologize and suggesting at one point that like his future career would be affected at least in one case or maybe both cases those administrators, I kind of their public profile sort of went blank for a bit. Did you do any follow up on that? Like, I assume the administrators are still working at Yale Law School, but was there any repercussions for them? Yes. Or, okay, what happened? Well, the outcry, I think, forced the school to issue some statements in which they claimed, albeit not very credibly, that 
they regarded the student's speech as protected speech and were never going to punish him. In that case, there was at least, I think it was Professor Romano actually went on the record as, as saying this was wrong. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe she wasn't the only one. Akil, Akil Amar did too. Certainly one of Yale Law Schools, I think one of America's uh, most esteemed constitutional scholars. So that's a big deal for Akil Amar to go public on that. And they did a report on it, but they didn't publish the report. And in order to see the report, I think it was like Ian Ayers deputy dean or something like that like you had to go into his office and read it but you couldn't take images of it it was just this really strange thing correct and 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 the thing that that report found that was sort of important was that the dean of the law school heather gurkin had apparently authorized this email from the dei director and the assistant dean condemning and she got a pass on that yep totally totally got a pass There was another thing, and you think you reported on this too, and this one to me is a little bit more disturbing because, so in this case, there was an open letter. This is also at Yale Law School. This is, uh, I think, in in March of this year. The Federalist Society hosted a bipartisan panel on free speech, and this was kind of like a double controversy for the critics because... So they signed this open letter. It sounds like something like 400 people signed it, which at Yale Law School is a huge deal because I think it's, it's like a three-year program and there's maybe 200 people in each year. So it's, it's like a majority denouncing a free speech event because, of course, free speech is, is Nazi adjacent now. The protesters actually like tried to prevent the, the thing from going forward and tried to obstruct it. And, and Yale police came in and resolved the situation. So, so they lost their minds about that, right? Because the police came in. People explicitly were saying, wow, I'm so shocked that not everyone has signed this letter. You know, this is the bare minimum you could do. I hope you realize that not signing the letter is not a neutral stance. That was literally something a student said. Um, And before the event even got underway, there were flyers littering the room that said that by merely attending this event, you are legitimizing a hate group. Um, Because One of the speakers was from the Alliance Defending Freedom, which has won a bunch of religious liberty cases in front of the Supreme Court. And just to be fair, from what I understand, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which itself has come under scrutiny in recent years because they're a little promiscuous with labeling people hate groups. It's putting it mildly, yes. (laughs) This particular group, it sounds like they're they're super conservative. They have been labeled uh, hateful by the SPLC. Yeah, they have been. I I think it's worth emphasizing that some of what the SPLC accuses them them of is just not true. They say that they support the state-sanctioned sterilization of trans people. That's not true. This is a tangent to a tangent to a tangent. But if anybody you know thinks, oh, these these two dudes are bad mouthing the SPLC, they must be in league with the bad guys. No less a liberal outlet than the New Yorker uh, a couple of years ago did a very thorough. I wouldn't call it a hit job, but it was. Uh, gave a lot of scrutiny to what the SPLC is about, and it was not a flattering portrait of the SPLC. And it went to the fact that the SPLC has gotten extremely sloppy about the way they label groups. But anyway, returning to the, the main thread here, you've got an extremely conservative group, certainly very conservative by Yale Law School standards, among several parties doing this free speech event. You've got a bunch of people who come in trying to shut it down because they claim it's sort of a hate jamboree. Did the police come and just like drag them out? Because they freaked out later about police having any involvement. Police didn't do anything to the kids. All the police did was escort the speakers, the panelists, out of the event once it was done. And we have audio because 
the protesters, I mean, they were making a lot of noise, being kind of rowdy and blocking exits. So, and there was some concern, you can hear on the audio, that the protesters might attempt to follow the panelists to lunch um, after the event. So, police came and said, yeah, there's like a group of protesters here, so, you know, we recommend that you exit with us, we will escort you this way to the squad car, and then we'll drive you to lunch. Because this is in the first paragraph of this open letter. We write as a coalition of queer students and allies deeply concerned with the presence of armed police at a peaceful protest of law. (laughs) The police were there because these protesters were getting up in people's faces and there was a concern of violence. But when you read this thing, and then there's like a whole paragraph later on about claiming the police like to beat up queer people. But from reading this, you would kind of get the sense that, that the police were there. It was, it was like Ivy League version of Stonewall in the 1970s. They were, they were there to prevent violence. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. I'll note that all three of the students I mentioned in this most recent piece about Roe, they were among the hundreds of signatories on that letter, all three of them. Aaron, one last question. I come across your name all the time in the context of this academic stuff. Are you full-time on the academic beat? So it's not just the academic stuff. I've written stuff about, um, for example, wokeness in medicine and the attempt to racially allocate COVID treatments. That's a big thing. Right. I've written about other institutions that have had similar cultural convulsions. Um, I did something last year about an, uh, the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. Mr. Zimmerman. Yeah, had a very bizarre kind of cancel culture saga. I'm working on some other pieces about about other about various liberal nonprofits that have had their own internal crises. So it's not just the academic stuff, but I do think the academic stuff matters because the schools produce the people who staff. Um, all these other institutions and agencies, and and it is, I submit, important what goes on at Yale Law School. Thanks so much for joining us on the Quillette Podcast, and congratulations on all your amazing scoops. Thank you so much for having me. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.